Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Welcome back to my 70s TV childhood, the place where it's okay to look back fondly on life as a child in 1970s Britain, and to admit how important television was as part of your childhood. There wasn't much of it compared to today, but I think that as we all sat together watching whatever there was on the three channels available, it gave my generation a huge sense of common identity, and I think that's borne out by the feedback you give us through your comments and emails. So moving on to our bulging digital postback, our last episode on We Are The Champions provoked a lot of response and seemed to divide opinion. On Facebook, a number of you agreed with Trevor, Liz and Steve, to name but three, that you absolutely hated the show for a number of reasons, including not liking sport, which is fair enough, and that it was on too much during the holidays. Again, something which I can't really argue with. I do have to say I was extremely impressed by John, who let me know that the theme tune was originally recorded by the Derby County squad in 1972, following their winning the First Division Championship that year, which I certainly didn't know. But I think the prize for most kudos goes to another John, who actually took part in the show when it came to their school. So, finally, after 50 years, I've come across someone who was actually on We Are The Champions. We love hearing from you here at My 70s TV Childhood. Hearing your memories of how the show has made you think of your childhood TV favourites is one of the most rewarding parts of making this podcast. But I need your help. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I try and recall things from memory. And, given the 1970s was a long time ago, I can sometimes, how should I put it, misremember things. And that's where I need you to help me. When you hear me plainly getting it wrong, I'd like you to send me a correction, along with your own favourite 70s TV show or your childhood confessions. The more corrections and confessions, the better. And I'll feature some of them in future episodes. Send your corrections and confessions to corrections at my70stvchildhood.com I would love to say in true 70s style, answers on a postcard please, but in a concession to the 21st century, Let's just say answers on an email instead. Thank you, and look forward to hearing from you. Now, I want to move on to a slightly serious subject for one moment. What's now become known as cultural appropriation, which in simple terms, or according to the definition I just googled, means the unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of the customs, practices, ideas, etc. of one people or society by members of another and typically more dominant people or society. Well, as children in 1970s Britain, we knew nothing of this concept, and society was filled with all sorts of cultural references taken from other peoples like India, Africa, and other areas where Britain had overseen its imperial past. We also took lots of references from North America, and the US in particular, and culturally, the whole idea of cowboys and Indians was very prevalent in films, on TV and in books. On TV, we had no end of cowboy shows, and some of these loom large in my memories. Shows like The Virginian, Alias Smith & Jones, and The High Chaparral transported us from dreary 1970s Britain to a beautiful land where the brave cowboys won the West against the Red Indians, who in turn 
either incredibly violent or incredibly wise. Now, I do remember having both cowboy and Indian costumes as a very little boy. And indeed, there are some photographs which are regularly trotted out at special birthdays and the like of me dressed in my Indian costume, complete with headdress and holding a little wooden bow and arrow. The arrow, of course, with a plastic sucker on the end. I have to say I love that costume and pretending to be an Indian. I also love my sheriff's outfit, which consisted of a black waistcoat with a sheriff's badge on it and a sort of fringe, yellow and red fringe, together with a matching black cat with a similar fringe around the edge and a gun belt, which had a holster and a six-shooter in it. Looking back, it was also innocent. I wasn't to realise the tragic nature of how the Native American people were driven from their ancestral homelands by the pioneers. I thought nothing of playing with toy guns, shooting at my friends with, if you were very lucky, a new roll of caps in the gun, making loud bangs. If not, then we just shouted bang at each other and fell writhing to the floor. But we weren't alone. And I do think it's so much better that younger people nowadays are far more aware of history and what it might mean to those involved. And it wasn't just TV that built on that image. I recently found a set of old I Spy books. Do you remember those? The whole series of educational books was designed to keep children quiet on long car journeys and amuse them during day trips and holidays by asking them to spot or spy different features, depending on the subject of the book. You wrote in the book where you'd seen the feature, and then you got points. I've got the books here. And what have we got? Uh, got I Spy in the Street. I Spy on the Road. Uh, we've got the I Spy Birds. I Spy History. I mean, I'm not sure when all of these date from, but there is a clue as they all have a cover price of one shilling and sixpence. Apart from the I Spy Birds book, which cost nine new pence. So it must have been a later edition. Now, what's relevant to the cultural point I was making earlier is that these books were ostensibly written by Big Chief I Spy, a wise Red Indian chief who spent his time setting educational challenges for British boys and girls. So I'm just looking at the, the back of my I Spy in the Streets book, and it tells me how I can become a member of the I Spy tribe and get my Redskin certificate. All you need to become a full member of the iSpy tribe is an iSpy membership pack, price two shillings and sixpence, which includes an iSpy badge and a secret code book. Buy one from your newsagent today. If you decide to order one direct from me, please enclose sixpence extra to cover the postage. Wear your iSpy badge everywhere. You'll find it an open sesame to all kinds of places. Tell your friends about iSpy. Invite them to join and form a patrol with you. Collect all of the iSpy books and you have a wonderful library of your own. And finally, write to me about any interesting discoveries you make. You may win a prize. Which is signed off Big Chief iSpy, Wigwam by the Water, 161 Queen Victoria Street, London, EC4. So quite a few of the books appear to have been filled in by, well, it looks like me, my sister, and actually in the main by my mother. Well, let's have a look at what we might have been looking for in the street. Just open on a random page. 
Okay. Uh, oh, here's a question. Where would you find the manufacturer's name on a pillar box or a crown on a telephone box or a lineman? Any thoughts? Well, the answers are apparently embossed on the black base, above the windows, and working for the GPO up a telegraph pole. There we are. I hope you got all of those right. So turning the page, what else have we got? Look out for street entertainers. The first one we're asked to look out for is the barrel organ, with or without a monkey. It's generally a small pipe organ, often slung on a two-wheeled carriage. Look for the handle, straps, and a decorated casing in the collecting bag. You might even get a glimpse of the organ inside. Now, I would also ask um, to, us to name one tune you hear played on your barrel organ. Okay. Um, now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I ever saw a barrel organ, let alone a monkey, in the streets of Warrington. What about you? Oh, there's also a section here on identifying different types of traffic light controllers. And I quote, Somewhere near the, every set of traffic lights, there will be a traffic controller similar to the two pictured here. This controller may be mounted on a post near the lights or stand in the ground. It may be buried underground or even placed in a nearby building. The controller holds all the equipment necessary to operate the signals automatically, but they can be switched over to hand control. You've probably seen a policeman doing this when the flow of traffic made it necessary. The small one, in picture D, is the Type 533 three-phase controller mounted on a pedestal or wall. On, oh, I could go on, but I don't think I will. Thank God for the revolution of the Pelican. You remember from a previous podcast, pedestrian light-controlled crossing in the mid-70s. I wonder what a modernised bicycle that might have in it. 30 points for a pushy young person grabbing you to persuade you to sign a direct debit form for charity. 25 points for a homeless person asking for money. Or perhaps uh, 50 points if you ice by someone walking to, into a lamppost because they're too busy to look up from their mobile phone. Well, let's have a look at another one. Let's have a look at the bird book. Oh dear, I've never been very good with this. Although I do see quite a few have filled in, as say mainly in my mother's handwriting. We saw a robin. Where's that? In the garden at home. And, oh, here's a good one. Uh, we saw a pheasant. And where do we see a pheasant? On a gate. That's not very helpful. Um, anyway, I think you get the point. The I Spy books were lots of fun. But even in the 70s, they appeared to be a relic of a former time. But they did reinforce the wise old Indian chief cultural trope, which also inspired the show we're going to be talking about for the rest of this episode. was first broadcast as a late-night show on Southern Television in March 1966 and was specifically aimed at the the just-back-from-the-pub audience on a Friday night. 
The aim was to continue the conversation and provide answers to the typical pub arguments that may have happened that evening about a whole range of subjects. It was created by the legendary Jack Hargreaves, a Southern TV producer who, after the first episode, thought that the concept might be better used aimed at children. And so from April 1966, it was moved to a tea time children's TV slot and was very quickly picked up by the other ITV companies and shown nationally. The format was the same from the first show in 1966 until the end of its run in 1981. There would be a panel of four presenters, normally Fred Dynage, John Miller, Bunty James and the aforementioned Jack Hargreaves. The show always opened with them raising their palms in the air and saying in unison, Ow! In the manner of the traditional Red Indian greeting. They would then proceed to spend the next 25 minutes answering a series of questions, all starting with the word, how. So, quite a simple format really, but a great way both to educate and to entertain its young audience. The questions range from things like history, geography and science type questions, through to some rather silly questions like, how do you lift a saucer with a carrot? It was, I remember, hugely popular. And some of that, I think, was down to the way it taught without being too teachy. After all, which self-respecting young child will claim to watch TV to be educated? But I think the key to it was the presenters who, in their own inimitable way, brought their questions to life and made them fascinating, no matter how dull the subject appeared to be. First off was Fred Dynage, a likeable, affable type, who presented the regional news on Southern, as well as being remembered by many as the regular stand-in for Dickie Davies on World of Sport. So whether it's moving effortlessly from the ITV7 to wrestling, or explaining how you can lift two full pint glasses with one finger, you always felt like you could trust him, and he was never going to lead you down the garden path. Of the other presenters, John Miller was a tall, thin, sort of mad scientist type, with an endless enthusiasm for explanations, no matter how complex the question. How did the Viking spaceship get to Mars, for example? I would always make the answer easily understood and sound like lots of fun, even if I didn't always understand every aspect of it. Bunty James, almost inevitably, seemed to do more of the traditional household tasks like cooking-related answers. But she, like all of the others, oozed enthusiasm for her subject and kept her children gripped to the screen as we learned how to make baked Alaska or tell the time using a sundial or something else. And then, finally, there was Jack Hargreaves, the show's creator. I think he must have been one of the last presenters on British TV who went on air smoking a pipe, and he came across as a kindly, almost grandfatherly type of countryman who knew everything there was to know about all that mattered and took his time to explain it to you in a slow, deliberate way, without any hurry, so that you felt his soothing voice wash over you like like getting into a warm bath. Hargreaves was actually a very successful TV executive, but one for whom the countryside and its traditions was something that he felt we shouldn't ignore, and he's very well remembered for his other TV show, Out of Town, that used to be shown on a Sunday afternoon, and consisted almost entirely of Hargreaves sitting in a shed, or probably it was a set that was done up to look like a shed, speaking to lots of country craftspeople who came in and demonstrated their own speciality that was usually under some threat from modern ways of doing things. 
He featured crafts like thatching and corn dolly making, as well as more exciting pastimes like making cider and beer. It was one of those shows which felt like a trip into the past, even in the 1970s, and I would imagine that many of the old ways of doing things that Jack featured have died out or maybe just hanging on by a thread somewhere today. So back to how. All right, I think we get the idea. Its cultural appropriation was quite innocent enough, I think, and I think we all saw it as such. What I always remember about watching the show was that I always felt that I learned something from it, and, as Jack Hargreaves had originally intended, I'm sure it provided lots of material for playground arguments and new tricks to share with friends. The show ended in 1981 when Southern lost its franchise, but was revived again in 1990 when it still featured Fred Dynage answering questions alongside Carol Vorderman and Gaz Top. But, like so many things, it wasn't quite the same. If only they'd managed to persuade Jack Hargreaves to come back on and smoke his pipe. Do you remember the I Spy books or watching How? Perhaps Jack Hargreaves inspired you to smoke a pipe in later life or to spend your time sitting in a shed making corn dollies. If so, or if you have anything else you'd like to share on this or any of the other episodes of our podcast, then get in touch. You can find our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. We're on Facebook and YouTube at My70stvchildhood. You can tweet at 70stvchildhood, or you can email me, oliver, at my70stvchildhood.com. And, of course, don't forget our new corrections and confessions feature. That's all for now, so thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and rate us on your favourite podcast provider. And most of all, if you enjoy listening, tell your friends. Join me again soon for more from My70s TV Childhood.